Good morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our, what, 21st lesson. And I envisioned this perhaps to be six or seven in the beginning. It's a good thing I didn't think it would be 20 in the beginning. We'd been here in 10 years. But this morning, what I think we're going to do is to conclude the Old Testament part of this revelation of God bringing about the completion of his purpose as a result of the fall. And next week, we'll begin to look at the fulfillment of this in the New Testament. And in anticipation of this, what I'd ask you to do is look at the Gospel of Matthew in general and the Gospel of Luke and Matthew specifically in the first three chapters. So specifically the first three chapters of Matthew and Luke, and in Matthew in general. And as you perhaps this week take your time of studying or reading the Word in those two sections of Scripture rather than some others, but just take your time off this week and do, go into these. Keep in mind specifically and look for what we're going, uh, proofs and revelation and fulfillment of what we're going to talk about this morning. Because what we'll talk about this morning, we're going to go through a lot of scriptures. I'm going to just read a lot of scriptures, not all by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm going to begin to read scriptural prophecy, predicting God's way and God's goal of achieving his purpose as we've seen that being moving along since Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when Adam ate of the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And so, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I suppose they call it. And so, as you read the Gospel of Matthew, and especially the first three chapters of Luke and Matthew, I want you to read it within the context of what we'll say this morning, and of all everything else, but especially this morning. So you remember last week we stopped with the enthronement of Solomon. Remember King David. God has promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish a covenant with David. And David's co the covenant with David would be God is promising that there would be a king, a Davidic king, a king like David to sit on the throne of David forever and rule and reign over his people as his people would be ruled by God on earth through this king. And so you remember David was not able to build the house of the Lord because he was a man of bloodshed, but he prepared all the, everything essentially needed for the building of the house. David did that and then David died. And we see that, don't we, in another man where in his death, he prepares everything for the construction of the house of God. And then David is succeeded. His seed is Solomon. The Lord has said to David, your seed shall sit on the throne. And Solomon sits on the throne of the Lord over Israel, the throne of God over Israel. And he's exalted, and he's high and lifted up, if you would. And as a result of that, Solomon builds the temple of God. And Israel becomes that great nation, the greatest extent and the greatest uh, uh, influence and the greatest power and the greatest wealth that they ever experienced was under Solomon. And so we see something of a picture of a coming king who when he rules and reigns, when he is exalted and enthroned, 
he begins to build the house of God. And the entire earth becomes filled with his wisdom, with the riches of his grace, with his people under his rule and reign. We see that pictured in Solomon, and we look for the completion of it further down in history. So this morning, with the enthronement of Solomon and with the construction of the temple, it appears that God would finally fulfill his creation mandates through the Davidic kings. And with the enthronement of Solomon, Israel now becomes a theocracy. It is a theocratic nation, a nation which is ruled by God, God's people under God's rule in God's place. Now remember that, God's people under God's rule in God's place. That's what now we see under Solomon. It is a theocratic nation. I emphasize that this morning because when you begin to read especially Matthew, you're going to see the culmination of what this Old Testament and especially this uh, Solomon enthronement is all about. You'll see the fulfillment of that when you get into Matthew, the kingdom of God. And so with Solomon, all of a sudden now, Israel becomes God's kingdom upon the earth. That's what's going on. So it appears now that God is ready to move his purposes forward, that the promises of God in Genesis and the purpose of God in Genesis are now being fulfilled. It looks like, hey, this time is going to work. What Adam could not do because of his sin, what God has moved over a thousand plus years to come to this place to bring about this Eden kingdom upon the earth that he wanted in uh, Genesis through Adam and his progeny. Now God has finally established in Israel through the reign and rule of Solomon and his leadership over God's people. It looks like, hey, we're here. We've made it. It's going to work. And so all of God's promises were predicted upon, predicated upon one issue in particular. What is that? Every promise and every purpose of God being fulfilled and able to be administered and worked out and come to a reality in our lives is based upon one single work. What is that? Obedience. Everything is upon obedience. You remember that. Everything waits for and anticipates and is on the ground of man's ability to obey. Listen to what the Lord says to Solomon in 1 Kings 9, 4 through 8. And I'm going to read a lot of this this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you may be anticipating some of these uh, verses and just open your Bible. We're reading out of the ESV, English Standard Version, as I read through some of these. Listen to this issue about obedience. Listen how central this is to God. And church, sometimes, you know, we get the thought, now that we're under grace, obedience isn't that big of a deal. Now that we're under grace, sometimes we get the thought, maybe obedience isn't that important. It was disobedience that brought everything down, and it is the obedience of another man that allowed it to be built up. And so listen to what God says to Solomon concerning his enthronement. As for you, the Lord is speaking to Solomon, if you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and rules. You see, obedience, obedience, obedience. Even in the face of disobedience, repentance and faith toward God to be established and maintained in an obedient lifestyle. 
if you do this, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, disobedience, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments, obedience, and my statutes, obedience, that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name, remember the temple, and I will cast out of my sight, and uh, cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house, this temple, will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land and to his house? Solomon started well. But listen to this verse in chapter 1 Kings 11, verse 1. It says this, Now King Solomon married many foreign women. Everything was going well. Then King Solomon began to marry foreign women. You may remember the admonition of the Lord when the people of Israel under Joshua come into the promised land. The Lord says, don't intermarry with these women. Have nothing to do with them because they will lead you astray into idolatry. Solomon's political enemies might have been conquered. Look, his political enemies had been conquered. Politically, this guy was on the top of the heap. But his internal moral enemy remained. His internal moral enemy remained. Verse 14 of that chapter 11 of 1 Kings says this, The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. By the way, the word adversary in the Hebrew reads what word? Satan. The word adversary is the word S-A-T-A-N in Hebrew. The Lord raised up adversaries against Solomon three different times. This is just the first of three times that the Lord raises up adversaries against Solomon because of Solomon's sin. Solomon's sins finally result in the splitting of the kingdom. The Lord doesn't split the kingdom while Solomon's alive. He says, I'm going to wait until you die, and then we're going to split the kingdom. And so after Solomon's death, the northern kingdom of Israel became uh, a separate kingdom and was destroyed in 722 B.C., you remember, by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom of Judah, which had some of the tribe of Simeon and some of the tribe of Benjamin in it, it was destroyed finally by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, in 586 B.C. And so what happened? Why? What was this all about? What was the reason for this? Well, I'm not going to re- read it, but if you were to read 2 Kings 17, 7 to 23, it highlights the continuing disobedience, unrepentance, and purposeful rebellion of God's people throughout the years after Solomon, which caused God to say, You have broken my covenant and I am taking you into captivity. So the northern kingdom is destroyed. They're dispersed. They're no longer a a nation. There's there's no longer an identity. They're all, the Assyrians scatter them all over the empire, leave a few in Samaria and so on, but you know, so many of them are gone. The southern kingdom, Judah, has been taken into captivity. The city of Jerusalem, the great city of God, and the great temple of God that Solomon built, They're utterly destroyed. 
completely destroyed. And Judah is taken into captivity. Only the poorest and the sick and the lame and so on are kept in Jerusalem and those who need to till the land. All the others are gone away. Now, what is the question that must arise in the minds of the people? What about God's promise to David? Because he said to David, My, I will establish your throne, what? Forever. What happened? What's going on? Has God's promise failed? Remember some of those questions in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Has God's promise failed? Has something come in that is so devastating that God does not keep his promise? Has that happened? No. Can something happen in our lives? Some misfortune that so devastates us that God will not keep his promise to us in Christ? Can that happen? Can it? Yes or no? No. You see, what are we learning here? We're not only learning that God is a covenant-keeping, promising God of the Old Testament, but this is the same God. I change not, remember, in Malachi. I am the same. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who promised in the Old Testament and who against all natural odds keeps and kept and will always keep his promise. He is still our God and the one who will always keep his promise to us in Christ. Amen? Because you see, it's not based upon who we are and how we are and when we are and anything about us. It is based upon the integrity of God's own will and purpose. That's where it is. So let's make sure when we're walking and we're not sure of things and what's happening and what is going on and what is my future and what about God, let's remember that the integrity and the power of the faithfulness of our God is resting in Him and not in us. Can you remember that today? These are great lessons not only to see a sweep of prophecy, but to see how it applies to my life so my life may be greatly stabilized when the winds of the world and Satan's lies and accusations come against me. What about God's promise to restore? Many of the Old Testament, you remember God began to raise up Old Testament prophets, and these were the administrators of the covenant. And we won't go into details there. But throughout all of these prophets, there is a continuing word. God is bringing judgment. You must repent. You must turn. There's coming judgment. But peppered in all of this judgment prophecy, there are prophecies peppered throughout. But even in the midst of judgment, God is going to restore a remnant. And when you look especially at Isaiah and Jeremiah, where we will camp out for the rest of this class today, it's not that the others don't, but especially Isaiah and then Jeremiah, and there are others. I know Zephaniah, you know, we can't, we don't have the time to go into all of these. I mean, there's a struggle that we have when we look at all these prophecies and try to scope them down to about five or six when there are hundreds of them. Judgment, judgment, judgment because of sin. But at the same time, restoration, restoration, restoration because of grace. Restoration because of grace. <clears throat> so let's talk about 
God's promises remaining. You see, let's talk about Isaiah first. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the emphasis is upon coming judgment. Chapters 1 to 35, the Assyrians are going to destroy the nation of Israel, the northern nation. And then chapter 36 and 7, you remember, and then 37 and 38 and 39, there's a coming judgment against the nation of Judah. You remember that. Remember Hezekiah is in there, but we won't go into details. But peppered throughout the first 39 chapters are prophecies of coming restoration through a remnant. The nation will be destroyed, but in the midst of the judgment upon the nation, God will keep a people unto himself. Do you remember what particular prophet lamented that he alone was left? Remember, what prophet was that? Remember that? And what does the Lord say? Hey, Elijah, I've kept what? 7,000 for myself. Do you remember that? You're not alone. Anyone in here think you're the only one who is being attacked by the devil? Anyone in here think you're the only one who is misunderstood? Anyone in here who thinks you're the only one who's been slandered, hurt, sinned against? Anyone in here thinks anything that you are alone? This is what we are God's remnant. We're not alone. We're all together in this. And God is working out His purposes in us. So scattered throughout chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, the Lord promises to preserve a remnant, a portion of His people who will be saved by a Davidic king. The remnant will be saved by a coming king of the line or the seed of David. Listen to Isaiah 1.9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, the remnant, Isaiah is saying, if the Lord of hosts had not left a few remnant, we'd all been wiped out. It looks like we're all getting wiped out, but the Lord has kept a remnant. Let's read chapter 4, verses 2 to 3 of Isaiah. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Listen to this. In that day, the day of the restoration of God's people, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors, the remnant of Israel. And he who is left in Zion, remember, that's the other word for Jerusalem, and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. So there's coming a day that this remnant will be established upon the earth as God's people through the rule and reign of a coming Davidic king. Then on that day, the kingdom of God will be established on earth, and on earth will be God's theocratic people, ruled and reigned by God through his <clears throat> agent, this great king, this one who will rule in his name. In chapter 6 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 12, Isaiah, remember that, sees the Lord high and lifted up. Remember his train filling the temple. And when he sees the Lord, he is sent to prophesy judgment upon the people. Remember, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, I will go. Remember, send me. I will go. Remember, his lips had been touched by that coal. His sins had been forgiven. And Isaiah is commissioned to go and prophesy. Prophesy the word of judgment and prophesy the word of coming restoration. 
chapter 6. But you see, he promises, God promises to do this, to preserve a tenth, a remnant. And though a tenth remain in it, in this nation that will be judged and destroyed, although a tenth will remain in it, like an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, this holy seed is its stump. Isaiah 6, 13. And so you see, God will keep a remnant. How does God bring about His purpose when everything looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket? He protects a remnant of His people and in this people and through this people, God will keep His promise. And out of this people will come this great Davidic king who will rule and reign in God's name. And as a result of that, God will finally accomplish what He wanted Eden to be in Genesis 1 and 2. His kingdom upon the earth in which His rule and reign and majesty and sovereignty is declared and administered through His people. Remember, fill the earth, have dominion, work and keep the garden. Remember the three mandates of Genesis 1.28 and 2.15. Listen to what chapter 11, 1 through 10 says. This deliverer's ancestry and work is identified. Isaiah said, who is this deliverer? Who is he? What is he going to do? How do we know him? The Lord gives Isaiah this incredible, incredible prophecy. Remember, these prophecies were written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before the opening pages of the New Testament. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Remember the house of Jesse. Do you remember what David's daddy's name was? Jesse. Remember David's daddy was named Jesse. So who are we talking about? This is the Davidic king. This is the house of David. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, nor decide disputes from what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, this Davidic king, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Verses 11 to 16. What is the effect of this 
root of Jesse, this, this branch that shall come forth out of Jesse, what will be the effect of this Davidic king upon the earth? In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pethos to Cush, from Elam to Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlines of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Remember, Judah and Israel will be destroyed, but God will bring them back through a remnant. You see the picture of death and resurrection here. Do you see these kinds of pictures here? The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall beg them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. And will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it in seven channels. And he will lead people across his scandal in, in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people. And there was for Israel when, as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. So what is Isaiah saying? What is the Lord saying through Isaiah? There's coming a day. And that day will be made possible because of a king. And because of this king, this king who will come out of the house of Jesse. And remember, when Isaiah is prophesying this, David has been dead for a few hundred years. Remember, David dies, what, what is the year? 940 or somewhere around there. This is a couple of hundred years later. David is dead. But you see, even though David is dead, the promise remains. And God is elaborating on how he will fulfill his forever covenant with David, which he established in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He is elaborating on what kind of a man. It will be a Davidic king. And what will be the effect of it? Here's the effect that we've just read in chapter 11. So remember God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 to establish David's throne forever. God will deliver his people through a Davidic king. In chapter 7, verse 14, remember God told King Ahaz there was a conspiracy against Ahaz and he was very worried or whatever. And the Lord says, I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to give you a sign of the fact and the power of my deliverance. I'm going to give you a sign of how I will deliver. Now, it happened in that day, but again, it was one of those signs that had a double intention. It had an immediate application, but it also had a prophetic or eschatological application, a coming application. Remember eschatology, a study of things that are coming, future events, the study of end times. It had an immediate and an eschatological application. God says, I'm going to show you how I'm going to deliver the people. Let me tell you how I'm going to do it. Do it. And he says this, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. How is God going to deliver his people? Remember what God told David. You're my son, and I'm establishing you on this throne. And you remember when Solomon was born. Remember in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, David and Bathsheba called his name what? Solomon. But the Lord told Nathan the prophet, go and tell them I have called him Jedediah. Jedediah. Remember last week? Jedediah. Why? 
What does Jedidiah mean? Beloved of God. Beloved of Yah. Yah's beloved son. Solomon is a picture of God's beloved son who will rule and reign in majesty and build the house of God and establish the kingdom of God forever. Can you say amen to that? I mean, this is not amen to me. This is amen to what God has promised and what he fulfills. What an incredible God we serve. And people say, you can't trust this Bible and you can't believe it because it's full with inconsistency. You know what your answer to them is? I didn't do it loudly today. That's the best answer I have for them. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, who is this child? What will he be like? What kind of a child is this? What do you mean a child, a son? Remember, son is indicative not so much of sexual activity. Son in these cases is indicative and revelatory of intimacy, of fellowship, and belonging together, and connectivity, of relationship. That's what this word son is implying here. That's what it means to God when he says, David, you're my son. Solomon, you're my beloved son. And to another son one day, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased. It has to do not with physical union, but with intimacy of fellowship, of oneness, of heart and mind and soul and strength and of everything. That's what this word son is talking about here. David is a picture. Solomon is a picture of him who will come to be the fulfillment of everything that it means to be in God's mind a son of God. In this one son who is called the Jedediah of God to Solomon pictorially to another man fully and finally so what does this son look like I mean what about this son Joe well let's turn to chapter 9 of Isaiah 6 through 7 here we have a description for unto us a child a son is born unto us a son is given Okay, what about him? What about him? And the government. What word does that remind you of when we say the government? Genesis 1, 28. Multiply, be fruitful, and fill the earth, and have dominion, government, kingdom of God, theocracy, rule and reign of God. Do you see it? When you read these words, when you read these passages, when you read these descriptions, get the entire picture and allow the Holy Spirit to bring all that he's been teaching us together against and upon that word or that term or those phrases or those activities. So the fullness of God's word may be continually in our heart and mind as we read this rich, rich, rich revelation of God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. What does that mean? 2 Samuel 7, the word forever. Do you see it? Forever. There will be no end. What does forever mean? No end. What does no end mean? Forever. You see, he's saying the same thing. There's coming a son. David pictured him. Solomon pictured him. But there's coming a son. The fullness of God's purpose in this son who will be a king, who will bring about in himself and by himself the totality 
of all that God has desired in creation. A son is given. And of the increase of his government of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts. May I give you just a little thing here. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Where do we see that word zeal in the New Testament? John chapter 2 verse 17. Jesus cleans the temple and the disciples remember the word which said, zeal for thy house hath consumed me. You see, this king will be consumed with the zeal of the Lord. What is the zeal of the Lord? That he and his people will dwell Emmanuel forever. That's the zeal of God. That we and he will dwell forever. That's the zeal of God. And so that's the zeal that captured Jesus' heart. He came with God's zeal and he came with the purpose of applying and paying for and completing God's zeal. That's the zeal here that Isaiah is talking about. In chapters 40 to 66, which is, if you would, the second half of Isaiah, the first half being about judgment, 1 to 39, the second half, 40 to 66, it is about glory. It is about restoration. It is about the good things that are coming. The judgment has been proclaimed, and now, even though it's peppered through those first and 39 chapters, prophecies of the coming restoration, the last uh, chapters, the last 27 chapters, resonate with the hope of Israel, the hope of this coming king, the hope of the establishment of God's kingdom upon the earth. Listen to this, these two, three verses in chapter 40, verses 3 to 5. In the wilderness, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You see, these, this chapter opens, this whole section opens with God's going to bring about His glorious purpose. And everything from 40 to 66 begins to resonate and unpack what this is all about. In the chapters that follow, the Lord promises to lead Israel out of Babylonian captivity and reestablish them in the land of promise. And this is like a second exodus. It's a picture of Israel coming out of Babylonian captivity back into the land. It's a picture of what God is going to do finally when His King is upon the earth and when his king has been lifted up and exalted and begins to build the house of God, begins to create the kingdom of God in reality upon the earth, this is the picture. These people who will become part of that kingdom will experience a second exodus or an exodus like that or an exodus in chapter, remember in, in the book of Exodus where they came out of the house of bondage into the kingdom of God. What verse do you see in Colossians that says that? 
For we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's of light. Which, what verse is that? Colossians 1 verse what? 13? Okay. <clears throat> Sounds good anyway. You see, Jerusalem, once again, it's torn down. When Isaiah is talking about this, you know, this, this city's going to be destroyed. Jerusalem, once again, will become the epicenter, the centerpiece of the nation, <clears throat> the place of God's dwelling people, with His people. However, as remarkable as all of that is, isn't that remarkable what God's going to do? It's remarkable. There's coming a king. He's going to be a son. He's going to rule and reign. He's going to deliver his people. He's going to conquer his enemies. He's going to establish God's kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever, etc., etc. That is remarkable. But there's something, I can't say more remarkable, but there is something remarkable beyond words of the means or the method that this king will accomplish this. Let's see what he says. Isaiah 42, 1. He is called God's servant. Remember that? Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth peace, justice to the nations. But how will he do it? How will this servant king, this servant king, this priest king, this prophet king accomplish God's purpose for the remnant, for his people? Here it is explained to us in Isaiah 53, 1 through 5. Who has believed what they heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, who? That son. Remember the son in chapter 11? Remember the son in chapter 7, a virgin? Remember that son? Remember that Davidic king? Remember that servant in chapter 40? This is the one we're talking about. We've gathered in a whole lot of other verses that you haven't seen this morning. He, this is that one, this Davidic king. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. Remember the root of Jesse? You see some of these play on words. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In other words, he was not a good-looking guy. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. How is this king going to accomplish the great purpose of God through his great sufferings? You see, this is in the biblical text, in the Judaic prophesaic history. But this is what the Jews and especially the Pharisees and the leaders did not understand and would not accept. This was probably one of the great stumbling blocks to when the Messiah came. He didn't come as a great king and a sword and kick the Romans out and establish a great political kingdom. He came this way. Why? Because you see, before everything be reestablished, <clears throat> sin must be dealt with. 
before anything and everything be reestablished, sin must be dealt with. And sin can only be dealt with through a righteous man who suffers much, and especially who suffers at the hands of a just and holy God, the wrath of God. Okay? That's what this is all about. How would this servant, servant how will he have the ability to hold up underneath and to carry out God's mission? How is he going to be able to do it? Listen to Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. I'll just leave it at that. I will put my spirit upon him. He will be filled with God's Holy Spirit. Here is a man who is not doing it in his own energy, but who is doing it in the energy and the power and of the anointing of God's Holy Spirit. A man who is walking the earth in complete and absolute obedience and dependence upon God. As Adam was to do, this man is doing it being empowered by God's Spirit. That's what this king is doing. And that's why this king is able to complete the day without sin and accomplish the work of God. Through this leader, not only Israel, but all the nations you see of the earth will be blessed. And then the presence and glory of God will rule and reign in the hearts of his people. Now also Jeremiah makes certain prophecies. But his prophecies center on the context of a covenant as the relational context in which God will bring about this king, this son, and his work. How will it happen? It will be within a context of a covenant. Why a covenant? Because you remember in Genesis we saw that God created and put Adam <clears throat> within the garden, within a covenant context. Adam had covenant responsibilities. God and Adam would relate to one another and fellowship on the basis of Adam keeping the covenant demand. It was called a covenant of works. Adam was to work or obey, and in his continual obedience, he would be brought, and his progeny, his kids, would be brought into the fullness of resting in God forever. This is the purpose. And at that point, Edom, Eden then would begin to grow, and the garden would begin to take over the whole earth with the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God then would be upon the whole earth. But Adam disobeyed. But the covenant of works and the covenant is what's talked about here in Jeremiah. And so in Jeremiah 30, 33, these chapters, God promises to save and restore his people through a new covenant. New, not in the respect that, hey, we've never seen this before, but new in the way it is purchased and applied New in that way, retaining all the aspects of the original covenant, but new in the way we are going to receive it and new in the way that we are going to benefit from it. That's the newness here. Not new and hey, this has never been and this covenant does away with all the others and we can chuck all the others and this is it. No, we keep all the others, but in this one all those others are brought together and fulfilled, you see, by this Davidic king. So the verses here, Behold the days of coming, declares the Lord, that I will restore the fortunes of my people, <clears throat> Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. By the way, Ju uh, Jeremiah is prophesying to Judah before its destruction. It's going to be destroyed during his days of prophecy. But they shall serve the Lord their God, and David, you see, their king, David their king, and I will raise up whom I will raise up for them. And I, you, know, I, you can read the rest of this prophecy. I want to just move along so I don't run us over the time. <clears throat> In chapter 30, verses 21 to 22, 
This is what we read about this king. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For he who would dare of himself to approach me, dare declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. So how will this covenant be enacted? Through this king. This king shall represent the people of God and shall come before God himself and God will enter into a covenant with this king as he did with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David representing as king the whole nation. God in this one king, all God's people will be represented in this one king when God and this one king make perpetual new covenant forever. Amen? You see, that's what's happening here. Let's see what's happening. It's pictured in 2 Samuel, it is prophesied in Jeremiah, and it happens, you remember, years later, and we'll discuss when it happens. If you want to go ahead and start reading in Hebrews, you'll see a whole lot about all of this. It comes to life when we read Hebrews and you begin to realize, hey, that's what's going on. I read all that and I heard, now I understand Hebrews a lot better, don't you see? This priest king will inaugurate a new covenant. Chapter 31, 31, one of the chapters and verses you need to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. You see, and it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant in the respect that people have to keep it through their obedience. But this covenant, which will still have the law in it as its central issue, is no longer required to be kept by the people in order to maintain it. But this king will himself keep entirely and perfectly the full Mosaic covenant. All of the law and all of the requirements of that covenant, this king will keep that covenant. And in keeping that covenant, he will do so on behalf of and in, on behalf of his people. So when he keeps it, God declares that all his people have kept the covenant. Do, do you see that? This is what Jeremiah is telling you. This is what 2 Samuel 7 is all about. This is what God has promised Abraham. Remember in chapter 12 and 15 and especially 17 of Genesis. This is the work of God being fulfilled, proclaimed to be fulfilled. So the new covenant will only differ only in its ability to now be kept by the people. Why? Not that I am now called to keep something, but I'm called to have faith in him who keeps it. And I stay in him by faith and he has kept it. Therefore, I am seen as keeping the covenant. You see, this will be an, an unbreakable and eternal and in an unbreakable internal work of God written on the heart rather than established on stone tablets. This will be a work of God written on our hearts, which if you were to read Ezekiel chapter 36 verses, actually you go before, but especially verses 26 and 27, the Lord will say, I'm giving you the spirit and I'm going to put the spirit inside of you and I'm going to take the stone heart. Remember the stone, the tablets of stone on which the law was written. I'm going to take that out and I'm going to put with you in a heart of flesh what a living relational heart that fulfills the covenant that Jeremiah 31, 31 is talking about. It will be a relational thing. It will be kept 
inside of you. It will be an unbreakable covenant. Why? Because he who has kept it is he who ever remains faithful before the throne of God forever. And as long as this king sits upon his throne, ruling and reigning as a man over all the universe, this covenant is kept and enforced for his people. Now that's great. That's incredible. This is why no other religion in the world is like this. And it wasn't given to us by aliens. <laughs> Fools. It was given to us by God Almighty because of His good grace. Do you see coming together this whole Bible better? Do we see coming together this whole Bible? And so you just read Ezekiel 36. So a new day is coming. A day of God's people being indwelt by His Spirit, made possible by the atoning work of God's righteous King for their forgiveness, to be kept until the end of the age, anticipating the new heaven and the new earth. Next week, when you read, look at Matthew. Remember, theocracy, kingdom of God. Remember the first three chapters of Matthew and the first three chapters of Luke. And when you see that, and we'll talk about it next week, especially in Luke, Ask yourself, why is there so much excitement? Because God is finally bringing upon the earth in reality what He has promised since Genesis 3-6. See you next week.